Thank you, Calvin. I hope when I get in my 80s that I can still sing. I want to mention before we open God's Word, just as a reminder, that um, we're going to be taking a special collection over the next couple of Sabbaths uh, through the end of the year uh, to try to replace the chairs in our, our fellowship hall and our campus center. And um, you can read about it there in the, uh, in the church bulletin. And so the next couple of Sabbaths, uh, we're going to be taking a collection, uh, perhaps have the children involved in that, and putting these gifts on the tree. Um, and hopefully we can have enough to be able to replace those, those chairs that are much, much needed. So uh, we encourage you to prayerfully consider uh, the church in your year-end giving. I also want to uh, draw your attention to the special concert this afternoon. It was already mentioned, but Rudy Michelli will be a guest of ours here in uh, the church this afternoon at 4 o'clock, a Vespers concert to close out the Sabbath. And... Uh, at the end of my sermon uh, today, uh, Rudy will have a, a special musical number that will kind of uh, cap things off. So I uh, encourage you to come out this evening and uh, bring friends and neighbors. This is going to be a great uh, festive occasion uh, this evening in this special Christmas concert uh, that uh, Rudy uh, shares with us this evening. I invite you to pause with me now for a moment of prayer as we invite God's presence. Lord. We've already been blessed, we've already worshiped, but now we want to hear your words, and so I'm asking that you would set me aside and that you would uh, communicate to us through your word, the truths of your word, open our minds and our understanding in Christ's name, amen. Hallelujah. It was nearly 30 years ago. We were pastoring in Wyoming at the time, and we... Uh, while we were there, Pastor Jan had an opportunity to take a special intensive class in pastoral care that was going to be offered in Fresno, California. And so she began to make plans. This was a class that was going to take, uh, you know, the better part of a week, I think maybe even over a week. And one of our other members in the uh, Rock Springs Church said, hey, listen, I've got family out that direction. I'd like to travel with you, and we can go together and, and drive together. So that was the plan, and, and Pastor Jan packed her bags, and she left. And I was home alone for more than a week. Now, I knew about when she was going to be coming home, but not exactly. Now, I know some of you who are younger um, have a tough time trying to comprehend this, but this was the days before cell phones. Before you could text or call or follow via GPS and track someone's every move. I didn't know exactly when Pastor Jan was going to be coming home. I had a rough idea. But I knew there was one thing that I needed to accomplish, and that was before she walked in the door, that pile of dirty dishes that it had collected since she was gone needed to be washed. And so I knew I needed to prepare because Jan was coming soon. After sin, God made a promise to Adam and Eve 
that he would send his son to save them. The coming of the Messiah was the long-expected hope of the Old Testament. However, more than 2,000 years ago, confusion existed about the first coming of Christ. And now, at the end of time, confusion exists about his second coming. How were many of the religious leaders and people of Christ's day expecting him to come the first time? What was their idea about the messianic prophecy? There were numerous prophecies in the Old Testament. They knew about the coming anointed one and, his, and the promise. Any true follower of Yahweh knew the promise that existed and that Messiah was soon to come. The coming king to sit on David's throne was the hope of all Israel. But confusion existed in Israel regarding to the manner of his coming and his kingly authority once he arrived. Let's notice what the Old Testament scriptures had to say in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Hallelujah. Israel, having been in captivity by Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally Rome for nearly 600 years, misinterpreted the Old Testament prophecies. They were looking for a king to release them from the bondage of physical slavery. They failed to consider such prophecies like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which described a suffering servant, Messiah. You see, they were looking for the obvious. They were looking for the spectacular. But to them, the Messiah came as a thief in the night. As we seek to understand the dilemma regarding the manner of Christ's second coming, I'd like for us to notice three characteristics regarding the manner of Christ's first coming. Despite the grand ideas and hopes of Israel, the first coming of Christ was obscure, silent, and inglorious. Let's unpack that for a minute. First of all, Christ's first coming was an obscure event. The only earthly beings to witness the birth of Jesus were Joseph, Mary, and a handful of barnyard animals. Even the shepherds received the news after his birth. And who knows how long after the event the wise men arrived. Let's notice the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, 
Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice it, what it says. There is born. In other words, indicating that the event has already happened. In fact, some versions actually translate that, has been born. The NIV translates this portion, for there has been born. Jesus had already been born. The uh, shepherds learned about his arrival after he was born. Well, Israel was looking for a spectacular advent of the Messiah. He came in an obscure manner. But the next thing noteworthy about the first coming of Christ is that he came in a silent manner. It was a silent event. Indeed, that night so long ago was a silent night. Other than the singing of the angels to the handful of shepherds on the, on the hills outside Bethlehem, no one heard a thing. It was a silent event. There were no peals of thunder. There wasn't a drum roll. There was no blast of the trumpet. The only noise at the first coming of Christ was the sound of barnyard animals. The first coming of Christ was obscure, silent, and it was inglorious. When our two children, Elizabeth and Anthony, were born, I was there. It was a clean, sanitary environment. Sterile instruments, doctors and nurses with caps and gowns and gloves. But the birthing place of Jesus was far different. Many of you recently attended the Simi Community Christmas event at the Mormon Church where Art Carnes and his Caneo Slides performed. And for those of you who were there, you knew that in the back of the Mormon Church Auditorium, uh, they featured a crash display. It was amazing. For those of you who went, you know what I'm talking about. An international crash display. And, and, and so you saw nativity scenes from all over the world, from different countries, from Africa, from, from India, from all over the world. Asian nativity scenes. But you know, as I looked at those nativity scenes, I saw something that exuded warmth and comfort. I saw the stables with hay and cattle and sheep and donkeys. I saw Joseph and Mary. I saw the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. Every one of them spoke to me. Hey, come on in and enjoy. But there was something conspicuously absent in every single creche that I saw. There was no manure. 
There was no manure. Last spring, I went to North Dakota for a few days and I helped my brother-in-law work his cattle in the barn. I hadn't done that in a long time. I donned boots and a pair of jeans. Big rubber boots came way up here, and you know why. I was reminded of something when I stepped my foot in that barn. Where there's cattle, there's manure. Lots of it. Look, friends, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm not trying to make you sick. I'm trying to connect your mind with reality. We have sanitized the nativity. There was nothing sanitary about it. Jesus wasn't born in a delivery room, in a modern-day delivery room. Jesus was born in the stench and the muck and the mire of humanity. That's what makes the miracle of the manger so amazing. Max Licato, in his book, God Came Near, imagines the scene in the stable the morning after the birth of Jesus. Listen to his words. God had entered the world as a baby, yet were someone to chance upon the sheep stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning, what a peculiar scene they would behold. The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungent in the air. The ground is hard, the hay scarce, cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse scurries across the dirt floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Wow. And this is where Jesus was born. The first coming of Christ was obscure. It was silent. And it was definitely inglorious. Yet those who were awaiting his coming were looking for the opposite. There was confusion regarding the manner of the coming Messiah among those who were anticipating his first advent. You see, they were expecting a royal birth in a royal palace with royal results. How are many of the religious people of today expecting Christ to come the second time? Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye authored a popular book a few years ago that most of you have heard of. The book is entitled, Left Behind, A Novel of Earth's Last Days. Their book, which sold millions and was also released as a full-length motion picture shown in the theaters, offers their account of what life might be like for those left behind when millions vanish at what they classify as the secret rapture. Listen to this description about their book. Passengers aboard a Boeing 747 en route to Europe disappear instantly. Nothing remains except their rumpled piles of clothes, jewelry, fillings, surgical pins, and the like. Vehicles 
suddenly unmanned, careened out of control. People are terror-stricken as loved ones vanish before their eyes. Some blame space aliens. Others claim a freak of nature. Still others say it was a high-tech military attack by a world conqueror. But airline captain Rayford Steele's wife had warned him of this very event. If Irene Steele was right, both she and their young son have disappeared. What about their older daughter? Like Rayford, Chloe had been skeptical. In the midst of global chaos, Rayford must search for his family for answers, for truth. As devastating as the disappearances have been, the darkest days may lie ahead. Terror and chaos continues worldwide as the cataclysm unfolds. For those left behind, the apocalypse has just begun. Unfortunately, as was the case with the first coming of Christ, much confusion exists among many who are awaiting the second advent. However, the biblical facts regarding the manner of Christ's second coming are clear, and they are important for us to know. You see, if we fail to know the truth about Christ's return, we'll be as ill-prepared as were those awaiting the first advent. It's interesting to compare and contrast the manner of Christ's first coming with the manner of his second coming. While Jesus came the first time in an obscure, silent, and inglorious manner, his second coming will be visible, audible, and glorious. Let's take a look at that. First coming, obscure, silent, inglorious. Second coming, visible, audible, glorious. The Bible describes the second coming of Jesus as a literal, visible event. Jesus and his disciples were standing on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem when suddenly Jesus was taken away. He was lifted up right in their presence and began to ascend. And, and notice the words of the two angels that were standing there. Here's what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Hallelujah. And Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And what about Matthew 24? Notice the words here. Jesus himself spoke these words. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The coming of Jesus the second time will be a literal, visible event. Just the exact opposite of his first coming. The second coming of Jesus will not only be visible, it will be audible as well. No silent night the second time. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Matthew chapter 24, notice what Jesus himself says. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. There's nothing silent about that, friends. There's nothing silent about a shout from heaven. There's nothing silent about the blast of the trumpet. The second coming of Jesus will be an audible event. No silent night. The second coming of Jesus will not only be visible and audible, it will be glorious. No stinky, smelly, stable for Jesus the second time. No swaddling clothes lying in a manger the second time. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30 says this, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. For those that teach that Christ's second coming will only be seen by the righteous, it's obvious from this passage that the unrighteous will see him as well. And one other interesting comparison between Christ's first advent and his second coming. There were animals present at Christ's first coming. And you know what? There will be at least one animal present at his second coming. In fact, the scripture describes Jesus as writing one. Revelation chapter 19. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on the head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one except, knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of the mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus coming the second time will involve Jesus on a white horse. And notice what it says here in verse 16. And he, was, and, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. The first coming of Jesus was obscure. It was silent. It was inglorious. The second coming of Christ will be quite the opposite. Visible, audible, and glorious. Hallelujah. I mentioned the Jenkins and LaHaye book left behind. And that their whole thesis of that book is based on the secret rapture. 
This theory they call the secret rapture. And, and, and it's all wrapped up in, in essentially one scripture. Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41. I'd like you to notice what it says. I'm reading it here from the NIV. And the reason why I read it from the NIV is because uh, most of those who, who uh, share this theory happen to use this version to do so. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Where do they get the idea that the ones who are left are left behind and left behind alive? Well, you know, I searched many versions of the scriptures to see if I could find anything. There's only one uh, a scripture, one, only one Bible, and, and you can't even refer to it as a version because it's a biblical paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson, the Message Bible. Many of you have read it. Many of you have copies of it. And I like to go to the Message Bible from time to time, and, 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 and I like to read some of the things uh, that it, it brings to light. This happens to be one where I believe that uh, Eugene Peterson clearly practices eisegesis. In other words, he reads into the passage something that clearly doesn't exist. And notice what he says in Matthew 24, 40 and 41 from the message. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken. One left what? Behind. And that's a word he inserts. It does not exist in the Greek New Testament. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left behind. Suppose, if you will, that that word behind, the insertion of that word behind, was acceptable. The question we need to ask is, how are they left behind then? I'd like for you to notice Luke's description of this same passage of Scripture. Luke 17, verses 34 and 35. I tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together, grain together. One will be taken, the other will be left. If we read these verses in isolation, then perhaps we could come to a conclusion regarding some sort of secret rapture. But it's imperative when you read Scripture that you read Scripture it's in, it's in its context. And I'd like for us to, to take a look at this passage of Scripture in its context. So let's take a look at Luke 17, verses 26 through 29. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving, being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and what? Destroyed them all. You see, friends, the context of Luke 17 clearly indicates that those who are left behind are not left behind alive. They are dead. In fact, I'd like for you to notice what verse 37 says. Now, these are the words of Jesus, friends. Where, Lord, they asked, he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures gather. Left behind does not refer to anyone 
left behind alive. And there's another key factor as, as to why many Christians believe that those left behind uh, at the rapture are left behind alive. It, it, it plays into their belief that these individuals will be given a second chance to repent during a seven-year period of tribulation. Frankly, I don't believe the scripture supports a theory of the second chance. Let me give you a couple of things to think about. Were the antediluvians given a second chance? When the flood came and Noah and his family was in the ark, were those citizens outside the ark given a second chance? No. It was curtain call time, friends. Were the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah given a second chance? Remember what we just read? It said they were fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. And remember the words of Jesus as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. There was no second chance then. And there will be no second chance at his second coming. Why do you think the devil wants us to believe in a second chance theory? You see, if you don't decide today, you can always take care of it later. And if the devil can get us trapped into them, that mentality and we delay our decision for Jesus, then salvation never comes to us. Friends, if you don't make your decision now, there's no second chance. And if we believe the devil's counterfeit of that, then he's got us right where he wants us. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 and 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Another issue of confusion I'd like to deal with regarding the second advent of Christ has to do with the scriptures that indicate Christ's coming will be like a thief in the night. Notice what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 says, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Notice that? But let's go on and read the rest of it. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night. Or to the darkness. Many believe that the five New Testament references which refer to Christ coming like a thief indicates the manner of his coming. However, each and every one of those passages indicates the unexpected time of his coming, not the manner of his coming. The second coming of Jesus will be quickly and unexpectedly like a thief. And finally, the final issue of confusion I'd like to deal with regarding the second coming of Jesus has to do with where the saints will be during the time of trouble. Those who espouse the theory of the secret rapture claim that the righteous will not go through the time of trouble. They believe in what is known as the pre-tribulation theory of the rapture. 
In other words, that Christ will come before the tribulation and snatch the saints away. Hence, they come up with this secret rapture idea. The saints won't have to endure any hardship, any pain. I personally find it difficult to substantiate such a theory with the overwhelming amount of scriptural evidence to the contrary. God has always, always preserved his people through times of trouble. The scripture is clear on that, friends. Noah and his family didn't escape the challenges of the flood, but God saw them through the time of the flood. Remember what Jesus said about the days of Noah and its relationship to the coming of the Son of Man? God didn't rapture his people before the plagues fell on Egypt. He preserved them through the plagues. Psalm 46 and 91 are classic examples of God's protection through crises. Notice Psalm 91, verses 3 and 4. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will uh, find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Wow. More than 2,000 years ago, confusion existed regarding the manner of Christ's first coming. Now at the time of the end, confusion exists about the manner of his second coming. But why is it important for us to sort out this confusion? Does it really matter? We only have to look back as far as his first coming to discover the truth about the manner and what really matters. At his first coming, people were looking for relief from physical slavery. Little did they realize that Jesus came to bring so much more. Their aspirations for the Messiah were political in nature. As a result, they failed to see the spiritual benefits of the Messiah. The first time, they were looking for his coming to be something grand and glorious. But in fulfillment of scripture and the prophecies of, of, of the Bible, he came in, a relatively, in relative secrecy. Today, there are those who are expecting his coming to be secret when the Bible clearly indicates that it's going to be grand and glorious. Isn't it interesting how the devil loves to get us messed up? He attempted to counterfeit his first coming, and now he's attempting, attempting to counterfeit his second coming. The dishes were done. Jan would be coming home soon. In fact, I was expecting her the next afternoon. At least that was the last word I'd heard from her. And so I went to bed. <clears throat> In the middle of the night, I woke up with a startle. I heard noise at the front door. I rolled over in bed. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. My heart began to race. What would I do? Where was that 2 by 4 I'd always promised to lay beside my bed at night. If only Jan were at home. She could call 911 while I hid in the closet. <laughs> Would she come home and find me a victim of some violent crime? After all, folks, you have no idea what it was like to live in Rock Springs, Wyoming in the 1970s and 1980s. 
I hid behind the door as I heard footsteps walking through the house. Then a light flipped on in the hallway, and I breathed a sigh of relief. It was my beloved wife, Jan. She was home, and I was happy. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Friends, the issues at stake have great controversy written all over them. You see, the devil wants us to be confused about the manner of Christ's coming because if we're confused, chances are we won't be ready. And if we're not ready, we're not going to be forever with Jesus. And if we're not going to be forever with Jesus, well, in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, the devil wants us to be confused about the credibility of Jesus. Isn't it funny how Satan tries to get us to believe the opposite of what Scripture teaches? He succeeded in deceiving many regarding the first advent, and he's attempting to deceive many regarding the second advent. Friends, here's the bottom line. Most of the people awaiting the coming of the Messiah more than 2,000 years ago were so focused on the what that they were not ready for the who. With errant theology rampant regarding the manner of Christ's second coming, the devil is gearing up for the great final deception. My impassioned plea today is that we seek to know Jesus so much that we'll not be deceived regarding the manner of his coming. Are you getting to know Jesus? Are you finding the pleasure of spending time with Jesus every day? Hallelujah. He's coming again, my friends. Not in an obscure, silent, inglorious manner. Not in the stench and the muck and the mire of a stable in Bethlehem. But he's coming again, sent by the Father as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Won't you be ready? Savior's birth Her 
how few beheld his glory when he came to earth. Oh, but soon every eye shall see angels at his side. See him now on a great white stallion in the eastern sky. Sent by the Father, Jesus go and call my children. A trumpet sounds and the angels like never before with the shepherds and wise men we humbly bow and every tongue confess that he is In all his glory comes to claim his own. We won't need a star to guide us. We'll be going home once a baby lying in no room at the end But now a king who reigns and reigns forever Over death and over sin
this afternoon. As I was sitting there listening to that song and thinking about what I presented, I recognized the hour is late. But friends, it's late for more than one reason. It isn't just 20 minutes to one on a Sabbath afternoon in December. It's nearly midnight and Jesus is soon to come. Do you believe it? And now more than ever, we need to be ready in our heart of hearts for that grand and glorious event. And as I make my benediction today, I feel deeply compelled to give an invitation. There's someone here today or someones here today that needs to respond and say, Jesus, I need to make you King of kings and Lord of lords in my life. I need to have my focus squarely on you now more than ever. And so I would just invite you to slip out of your pew and join me up here. If you are wanting to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life more than ever. Maybe, maybe you've distanced yourself from God and maybe you're needing to come back. Or maybe you're just needing to make a recommitment or a commitment for the very first time. I invite you to respond to that appeal as we pray. Would you just slip out of your pew right now? If there's someone here today that says, yeah, I need to make a recommitment to the Lord Jesus. I need to accept you as Lord of Lord, as King of Kings, and I want to be ready to spend forever with you. I just invite you to slip out of your pew. Jesus is coming again. We as Adventists have been proclaiming that for more than 150 years. And the incredibly good news is that he's not coming to an obscure manger in Bethlehem. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. But first and foremost, he wants to come into your heart today. Let's pray. Father God, as we confronted your word once again today, we have confronted the reality that the devil is attempting to deceive and destroy and devour. He's attempting to present errant theology 
that will somehow get us to not be ready. But we stand here today and worship in this sanctuary as those who want to be committed to seeing you face to face and spending forever with you. May we not toy with the future, but recognize that now is the time of salvation. Lord, thank you for your birth in Bethlehem's manger so long ago. But we invite your rebirth in our lives today so that when you come, when we hear the blast of the trumpet, when we hear the voice of the archangel, we will look up and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.